Hello, and welcome to a new episode of A Flat Pack History of Sweden. I am Chris. And I'm Elsa. This week we will end our little mini section on the early part of the High Middle Ages and see what the last few kings of this period got up to. There's not as many as there were in episode 28, so don't worry, it should be easier to follow this time. And by the title of this episode, Queens, Rebels and Crusades, there's quite a lot of action going on. Very exciting. But would you like to tell us the Swedish phrase of the week? Yes, this week's phrase is actually a movie quote that has uh, made its way into sort of general use. It's uh, something that you can say when you're maybe getting a bit tipsy. Man var ju nykter i morse, men nu börjar det upp sig. Which means, well... I was sober this morning, but now I'm fixing it. I think it's from a cult film called Sällskapsresan. I think Sällskapsresan is actually on Netflix. So at least if you're listening to us and you're in Sweden and you've got Netflix, uh, you can check it out there. I strongly encourage everyone who's able to, to watch it. Yeah, it's one of these films that comes up in cultural references all the time. We ended up talking about it at work and it and its four or five sequels the other day. Yeah, I think it's from like 1975. It's it's getting on now, but it's actually it's aged surprisingly well for sort of movie comedies of that time. Yeah, it is a comedy. Um, so yeah, how would you use this phrase? When would people use it in real life? Well, how it's used in the movie, uh, the movie is about a group of people who are on a package holiday, which was starting to get popular to do in Sweden in the 70s. And it's two guys, they're by the pool, and they're on their maybe third drink. And one says to the other, well... I was sober this morning, but now I'm fixing it. So by the time you're on your third drink, you're perhaps no longer so sober. And uh, this could be a a comment on that. Good to know uh, for use in the future. (laughs) Um, But now we're going to continue the story of the politics from the 1100s that we ended two episodes ago. In our episode where we saw 10 reigns cover a period of 50 years. And the drama is very much going to continue in this episode too. If we remember from that episode, there was a huge period of turmoil in Sweden. After Stenshiel, one of Eamund the Slimy's noblemen, who later became king, died in 1066. Eventually, things started to settle down when Inga, from now on going to be called Inga the Elder, became king in 1079. He was briefly deposed for a few years, but in total he reigned for about 25 years or so. He ruled for the first few years with his brother Halstin, but when Inga dies in 1110, his two nephews, sons of Halstin, jointly take the throne. They are Philip and Inga the Younger, or his Swedish name, Inga den Ingra, but that's a bit of a mouthful, so we're going to go against our policy of using the Swedish names for people in this episode, because Inga den Ingra <laughs> is a bit of a mouthful. That is, there are many Swedish vowel sounds in that, so yeah, we're just going to call him Inga the Younger, and he's on the throne along with his brother Philip, which is the really the only Philip we will see in uh, Swedish royal history. It's a very 
European sounding name. And of course, Chris, you'll like this uh, epithet, the younger, because that's very Roman sounding. Yes, like um, Pliny the Younger, for example. The Hevara saga puts this very succinctly for us. It says, Halstein's sons were Philip and Inge, and they succeeded to the Kingdom of Sweden after King Inge the Elder. So this is another reason why historians tend to believe that it was Halstein and Inge who were the two co-rulers in the previous episode. They give a good example to Philip and Inge the Younger, who were also brothers. Indeed, and this Stenshiel mini dynasty is really starting to flesh out now. It seems that these two brothers ruled quite well together. They are the fourth and the fifth members of this House of Stenshiel, and they also have links all the way back to Eric Segersel. I love this kind of link, even if it is a bit incestuous. If you remember, Olaf Wurkunung, way back when, had a daughter called Ingejard. Who later changed her name to Anna for Ease. Yes, exactly, because she married Yaroslav the Wise down in Kiev, who presumably liked the name Anna because he could pronounce it easier. Either way, they had a daughter together called Elisveta of Kiev. And during the winter of 1043 and 1044, Elisveta married Harald Hardrada, the Norwegian famous Viking who was down serving in the Byzantine Varangian Guard at the time and also occasionally fighting for Yaroslav too. In 1045, that lovely couple return to Norway where Harald becomes king, and in some time around the same year, they have a daughter aptly called Ingejard, named after Elisveta's mother. Elisveta also changes her name, or at least shortens it, to Elisiv for her life in Norway. This new Ingejard, the child, must be one of the most amazing people in this period, both because of what she must have seen and who she met, but also because of her lineage. She was the great-granddaughter of Olaf Hörkonung, granddaughter of Yaroslav the Wise, and daughter of Harald Hardrada. <laughs> That's really impressive. And furthermore, her two half-brothers, with which her father had with a mistress, both become kings of Norway during her lifetime. Well, you can't sort of enter the High Middle Ages as a person with better Viking aristocratic blood running through your veins from previous generations. Yeah, it really is some pedigree, and she adds to this history and uh, prestige herself. In 1067, there was a peace treaty signed between Norway and Denmark, where Ingejard marries Prince Olaf of Denmark, while Olaf's half-sister Ingrid married Olaf Schirra, Ingejard's brother and king of Norway, if that makes sense. Yeah. Good. So Ingejard presumably followed her husband from Denmark to exile in Flanders when he was exiled by his brothers, but he returns to Denmark triumphant in 1086 when he is crowned King Olaf I of Denmark. Unfortunately, this coincided with a period of famine and drought where supposedly even the rich grew thin. Olaf then gets the nickname Hunger, so he's known as Olaf Hunger. Oh, it's not a nickname you want. It's up there with slimy. <laughs> yeah, I think so. So this Olaf dies on the 18th of August, 1095. Uh, nice to have a very specific date for once. Under somewhat suspicious circumstances. Ooh. 
Saxo Grammaticus, the Danish historian who we've relied on a lot recently, even suggests that Olaf willingly gave himself to free the land of its bad luck and begged that all the guilt would fall upon his head alone. So offered he his life for his countrymen. Oh, so some sort of ritual sacrifice maybe to get the crops to improve uh, or something like that i don't know it sounds odd yeah it is weird and unfortunately that's sort of really the only information we have so we'll just have to imagine what that might mean yeah but what does ingiad do now then so she doesn't stick around she moves straight away to sweden where her distant relatives are ruling almost straight away perhaps in 1095 or 1096 she marries philip oh. So Ingegerd has gone from being Queen of Denmark to now marrying a Prince of Sweden. Unfortunately for her and Philip, she's just turned 50, so there's no real hope of anyone in the High Middle Ages having children from this marriage. But we're not really sure how old Philip is at this point. He's probably only in his late teens or early 20s, so it seems like that, you know, any no children is because the Ingegerd is so old rather than Philip being so young, mm. unfortunately, is the way of things. It's nice, though, that we see in history uh, a relationship where the age gap is that way around. It's uh, more often the case that uh, kings married very young women, but it's the other way around. Yeah, presumably because she had a lot of political power and influence, because otherwise, why would you marry someone who couldn't give you children? Well, she could just be an amazing person. I don't think that was taken into account too much when the uh, kings were choosing their uh, their wives and things, unfortunately. I want to give Ingia the benefit of the doubt and just say that she was such a cool lady that Philip just threw caution to the wind and married her. Yes, but it does seem more likely that Inga the Older and Halstein are marrying off their heirs to powerful people in the neighbourhood for marriage alliances and to legitimise their rule rather than looking for offspring for some reason. Well, we do know actually that a lot of illegitimate children are still being introduced into the royal lineage at this point so perhaps they were hoping to get their children from more illicit relationships rather than from their actual wife yeah and we should also remember that it isn't a strictly hereditary monarchy at this time so no. you can't always just think that the crown will go to the next generation Ingiard's nephew, Magnus Barefoot, is now king of Norway when she marries Philip, so this does seem like it might be one of the reasons for the marriage. And then in 1103, when Magnus dies, Magnus' two sons, Øystein and Sigurd, take the throne of Norway, so they are Ingiard's great-nephews. You can imagine it being quite a fun connection so to say uh, for the kings of norway their great aunt is still around and in 1110 she becomes queen of sweden but at the same time she is also the daughter of harold hardrada and would have known him personally so she's a really amazing sort of bridge between the generations it is quite interesting when different branches of the same family have their descendants, so if they come along faster than the other half. Uh, a bit like how I have teenage nieces now, uh, even though I'm in my late 20s, 
because my brother is 15 years older than me. Yeah, absolutely. And yeah, this is just an interesting dynamic to have. And unfortunately, we have even less idea about what her life would have been like as Queen of Sweden than we did when she was Queen of Denmark, as there's literally no information about Philip and Inga the Younger's co-rule until Philip dies in 1118. <sighs> so Inga Yerd is once again widowed. She has been, she's now the ex-queen of two countries. Wow. And uh, unfortunately, this is the last time we hear of her. We do know that she definitely survives long enough for Philip to die before her. But unfortunately, we don't know anything about that. But what a life. Yeah, what a life indeed. Uh, like I said, she was this amazing bridge between Viking rulers like Harold Hardrada and kings of the High Middle Ages. Yeah, because this is 50 years after Harold Hardrada died when Philip dies and she's still around and still yeah. linked to him. So yeah, it's just really impressive. But sadly, it's farewell to Philip and Ingeard rather soon in our story. Philip was probably buried at Vreta Abbey. We can't say for sure, but it seems like that was the burial place for his uncle, Inge the Elder, as well. We saw last week how Vreta Abbey was an important place for the royals at the time. But if we go back to the people who are alive at this point and luckily so for Sweden Inge the Younger continues to rule on his own after Philip dies. In general the rule of these two brothers seem to have been successful with the Westergötland law uh, of the 1200s saying that Sweden fared forever well while these kinsmen ruled. That's a very nice short description of Philip's co-reign. Uh, it'd be nice to have a description of my life being like that. There's also a bit of a strange occurrence next. And this has something to do with the Norwegian warrior king Sigurd, who was the great nephew of Ingeyard. We actually left it out of our episode on Christianity last time because we didn't want to spoil the surprise in the chronological story. And uh, you might guess what it is because of the title of the episode. Yeah, because, of course, this really now is the era of the Crusades. Uh, the High Middle Ages is famous for Crusades to the Holy Land and to Jerusalem. That has an impact on things that are going on in Sweden and Scandinavia as well. People are starting to spread their wings a bit. Yeah, they really are. And right at the start of Inga and Philip's reign, news would have reached them that their neighbour, King Sigurd, had returned from his own little trip called a crusade all the way to Jerusalem. Wow. Sigurd was actually the first European king to personally go on crusade to Jerusalem, leaving Norway in 1107 and spending four years on this adventure, returning to Norway in 1111. There isn't really much information on what he does for the rest of his reign in Norway. So maybe he was getting a bit tired of being stuck around in Norway by the time it gets to 1123. Because in 1123, he decides to take another dramatic decision. But before we got onto that, we have to say that his crusade to Jerusalem really was a big success. It kick-started this idea of kings going on crusade personally, even though he didn't really get much out of it in a material sense. 
because on the way home to Norway, he actually stopped off in Constantinople and gave all of his treasures to the Byzantine emperor in exchange for some nice horses to get him back via land to Norway. So that's quite nice of him to give a, a big gift to Constantinople. But yes, 12 years have gone by by this point, and in 1123 he does make this dramatic decision, because apparently he's found out that the Swedish province of Smorland had lapsed from Christianity, and so being the local crusader-in-chief in Scandinavia, so to speak, he decides to raise an army, goes down to Sweden to teach these Christians a proper lesson, and this is a crusade, the crusade to Smorland. Wow, crusade to Smorland. My mother grew up in Smorland, so I've, I've been there quite a lot. It's a lovely part of the world, but uh, to go on a crusade there, it, it just doesn't sound as... Uh, exotic for the Norwegian king as maybe Jerusalem or Constantinople. Yeah, it's, it's much easier to get home afterwards, though. True. Unfortunately, Inge the Younger isn't mentioned in this in any of the sources, so we just have to guess what he thought about this. I mean, after all, it was another king that came onto his territory, but... Perhaps being a Christian, he liked the idea of his subjects being forcefully returned to the faith, but he also perhaps didn't appreciate the fact that this rival king had an army going around one of his provinces. What is also interesting is that Denmark was also supposed to take part in the crusade, but King Niels decided against it at the very last minute. His wife at the time was Margarete Fredkulla, daughter of Inge the Elder, who was previously married off to the King Magnus of Norway in a peace treaty, if you remember from our episode two episodes ago. He had died and she had moved to Denmark to marry King Niels. So there was a Swedish princess married to a Danish king about to go crusading in Sweden with the Norwegian king. Bizarre, I think. <laughs> that is quite bizarre. In fact, we might still, in a way, be seeing the effects of this crusade today because Småland is now known as one of the most religious areas of Sweden. Now, Sweden is a very secular country, so even being the most religious area doesn't necessarily mean that you're very religious. But it is sometimes referred to, jokingly, as the Swedish Bible Belt because of its relatively high levels of church attendance and participation in church activities. Jönköping, the largest town in the area, is also jokingly nicknamed Sweden's Jerusalem. So that's probably why uh, Sigurd went there. He got confused. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. oh, he was on his way to the actual Jerusalem and just yeah. ended up in Jönköping. He's yeah. like, oh, this will do. I'll go back to Norway. <laughs> Require fewer horses to take me there. After this crusade, not much happens with Inge the Younger. Uh, he is married by now to a Norwegian woman called Ulvhild Håkan's daughter, but there are no children from the marriage. The last thing to happen to Inge is perhaps the most intriguing. He dies in around 1125, and the Västergötland law has this to say. The 10th Christian king was King Inge the Younger, 
the brother of King Philip, and he was named after King Inge the Elder. He was killed by evil drink in Östergötland, and it was his bane. Ooh, sounds like murder to me. Uh, sneaky one at that too, using uh, poison in a drink, perhaps. It's a bit different to poison someone than simply kill them in battle, so we're not entirely sure what's going on here. Or could it be that by evil drink, they just mean a disgusting drink? Like iron brew or ale <laughs> yeah. you know maybe he just drank something that was so rank that killed him maybe maybe but regardless of how he died inga the younger was buried next to his brother at verita abbey perhaps it's a bit confusing um but that would be nice if it was the case yeah now we need to take a little bit of a stock check and see where we are because this next section makes episode 28 with 10 reigns in 50 years look a bit clear and simple, <laughs> unfortunately. Because of the way the throne had passed through the royal families and the various kings have died without any surviving children, the only surviving royal descendants from any Swedish king going back to Stenshiel in the 1060s are some daughters of Inga the Elder. When Inga the Elder died in 1110, as his son had already died, we saw today that the throne had passed to his two nephews. But he also left a personal inheritance to the three daughters who survived him as well. The families of these three women will keep popping up in the story and are quite important to the next few episodes as well. So it's good to get a bit of an update as to what they're doing with their lives and how they fit in the story. Yeah, so this is the daughters of Inga the Elder. The eldest... Princess Christina, well, she's actually dead by now. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> she died in 1022. But it's good to know what she got up before then. Yeah, because she was married away to a grand prince of Kiev. So she was actually left out of the inheritance because she was, well, too far away. They couldn't send money that far. Uh, she had 10 children, some of which returned to Scandinavia to marry various kings of Norway and Denmark. Margrethe Fredkulla, as we just mentioned, had been queen of Norway and is now queen of Denmark. She has a son, Magnus, who is looking to utilize the fact that he is the only male descendant with Steinschild family blood still around in Scandinavia. He's also the only son of King Niels of Denmark, so is due to inherit that throne as well at some point. The final daughter of Inge the Elder is married to a Danish prince, Prince Björn. Uh, they married in 1025. Prince Björn is the nephew of King Niels. They have a three-year-old daughter called Christina, who will return to Sweden in a few decades' time, to marry one of the upcoming kings. But it's this Magnus, the son of Margaret and King Niels, who is the only male around in the Scandinavian area, as also said, with any sort of claim to the Swedish throne. It isn't a patrilineal claim. He isn't the son of the king. He's the son of a daughter of the king of Sweden. So it's not counted as an official heir in countries like England in the normal European way of doing things. But as we've seen in Sweden, it's not necessarily that important no. if you're an official descendant or not because you're elected. And because things have gotten so bad, he's the only real... <laughs> high-profile male figure left in the country. 
He is, after all, a grandson of Inga the Elder, great-grandson of Stenshiel, and, of course, the son of the Danish king, although that might count against him somewhat. So, Magnus takes a long, hard look around the country and decides that, yes, I think I feel like being the king of Sweden. After all, who else are they going to choose? According to Saxo Grammaticus, that lovely historian, Magnus was recognised by the Geese in Jörterland. Hooray! So the line continues. But... Hang on, he's only recognised in Jörterland. One day when he is sitting around contemplating what sort of king he's going to be, he gets a message saying that up in Svealand, a man called Ragnvald Knapphövde has been elected king of Sweden. Oops. <laughs> well, oops indeed, uh, because now there are two kings of Sweden, just in different areas. Knapphövde, now that's a bit of an unusual name. It either referred to a drinking cup, so huge it was the size of a man's head, or more generally meant round head, meaning that Rangvald was foolish. This is perhaps an accurate description of his personality, by the way, because of what we see happen next. At this point, we need to introduce a Swedish royal tradition, which is helpful to explain both this episode and help to explain the general situation we have in Sweden with the kings having to be elected. Yes, this tradition is called the Eriksgata. The Eriksgata is a traditional journey that a newly elected Swedish king had to make through his provinces in the kingdom to have their election confirmed by the local assemblies. The actual election took place in Uppland in Svealand at a place called the Stone of Mora, which was found at the Thing in Mora. It was originally only those people in Svealand who were able to take part in the election, hence the situation we've had in previous episodes of kings being proclaimed in Svealand but not in Vestergötland or vice versa. So the idea is the king is elected in Svealand but then travels around Sweden on this Eriksgata journey and as he goes he gets formally elected by each local town or people or region that he meets along the way. This is presumably helpful to assert your physical authority, but also quite literally put a face to the name for yeah. the people. Especially as they're not minting coins at this point because they've had a little bit of a break. How do you even know if the king would turn up randomly one day? You've never seen him before, but now he's showing himself to the people. Exactly. The tradition of Eriksgata is actually still around today, even though now it's a purely ceremonial thing. The current monarch, King Carl Gustav XVI, did this uh, when he took to the throne in the 1970s. He travelled around on an Eriksgata. That's nice. In fact, the Eriksgata of Rangvald is the first time that we have any evidence of it existing, and that's thanks to Saxo Grammaticus writing about it. However, the way it is written implies that this journey, uh, this Eriksgata, has been an institution for quite a while, which would make sense with what we know about the elected kingship. So, what happens this time? We have two kings in Sweden. Well, Rangval had, of course, been elected king by the Swedes in Uppland and started off on his journey. Because he believes he's the rightful king of all Sweden, so he's going to start off on his journey and get people to elect him locally. 
All went well when he got to Östergötland, but when he entered Västergötland, he did so without taking any of the locals hostage. This is one of these odd practices in the Middle Ages, where you would take notable people hostage just in case you were attacked, and you could kill the hostages if someone tried to kill you. Eventually, it turns into more of a tradition than a necessity, and so by not taking hostages, you're sort of insulting the people you're meeting. Yeah, because you treat them well and they get to hang out with you being the, the king or the important person. So yeah, it's a bit of a snub to say, no, we're not taking hostages. Yeah, not following the sort of set order of things. Yeah, and fun fact, the queen, being my queen, the queen of the UK at the moment, uh, she opens parliament each year by travelling to the House of Commons and gives a speech in the House of Lords. As she enters parliament, the palace authorities actually take a member of parliament hostage to make sure that the MPs and lords in parliament don't harm the queen. (laughs) So it continues back in the UK. And there's actually an excellent interview with one of the more recent hostages where the MP describes that they were taken to the palace by the Lord Chamberlain. And in this uh, interview on the BBC website, uh, if you just Google sort of opening a parliament hostage BBC, it might come up. But uh, in this interview, he says that... The Lord Chamberlain made it absolutely clear I could do whatever I wanted at Buckingham Palace. I could wander around, I could have a gin and tonic, a cup of coffee, or I could join him. And his preferred option was to watch the state opening of Parliament on the BBC, which is what I did with him, and wait until Her Majesty's return. Oh, that sounds nice. It's nice to get a gin and tonic. Not like Sweden in the 1120s. As we'll see. Yeah, because Ragnvald enters Västergötland without taking hostages. Uh, And when he gets to Karlaby, he was murdered by the locals, who, of course, had instead elected Magnus as king. And this is what uh, Saxo Grammaticus says. King Inge was dead, and in spite of the fact that it was the privilege of the Swedes to elect a new king, the Geats insulted this dignity by putting aside the right of others and ventured to give the kingship to Magnus. The Swedes did not want to allow the Geats any kind of right in this respect and considered it improper that a lesser nation should claim a right that had belonged to the Swedes since time immemorial. As they claimed their old rights, they declared the election of Magnus invalid because the Geats had no right to elect king and elected a new one. This new king was soon killed by the Geats and at his death, the dominions passed to Magnus. Yeah, so basically, the when Inga dies, the the Geats say, "Oh, our friend is now king of Sweden," and the the Svea are saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa, whoa! You can't do that. We're going to elect this guy as king." But then he's murdered anyway, and so Magnus just takes his rights because he's dead. Yeah, and we should clarify that when we say Geats, that's the English word for people from the Västergötland area. Yeah. And Swedes, confusingly, is the English word for people from Svealand, but it's also nowadays what all people from Sweden are called. 
just the names and translations of these groups of people can sometimes be a bit confusing. So yeah, Rangveld didn't last very long, although we don't actually have a date for this. It's just some time between about 1025 and 1029, but presumably he didn't get a chance to do much if he went on his Eriksgata quite soon after being elected king. Intriguingly, the Vesterjurtland law of the 1200s doesn't name Magnus in this incident, just like Saxo Grammaticus didn't name Rangvald. The Vesterjurtland law says, The tenth king was Rangvald, bold and proud. He rode to Carleby without hostage, and for the disrespect that he showed to all the West Geats, he was given a death in shame. Then, good law speakers and chieftains ruled Vesterjurtland, and everyone was safe in their country. Yeah, and this reference to the law speakers taking charge in Vesterjurtland mean that most lists of kings of Sweden don't have Magnus included as a full king at all. He is never elected by the Swedes in Svealand, but has to try and force his will on the country. But he still has time to do something else. Uh, He gets married in 1027. He married Rikissa, a daughter of uh, Boleslav III of Poland. The couple had two sons, uh, with the main one being Knut, born in 1129, who would later become king of Denmark. Magnus does seem to have lots of things on his plate at this moment, because being the only son of Niels back in Denmark means... He has a lot of rivals trying to take his position away from him. Yeah, because he's the only son, people think that, oh, if we kill him, then we'll have a much easier chance of taking the throne for ourselves because when the only legitimate heir is dead, there's a chance for us. He therefore seems to spend pretty much all of his time in Denmark rather than in Sweden. However, as if all of this wasn't enough... He also manages to find time in 1030 to help Boleslav of Poland, his father-in-law, to conquer the German island of Regen. Wow, very nice. Adventure for him. Yeah, Regen is very nice. And things really kick into gear around this time too, in around 1130. This is when Magnus's mother, Margaret, dies. So King Niels in Denmark actually then marries Ulfhild, Inga the Younger's widow, who's been living in Denmark since her husband died. I mean, royal life at this time is just like the craziest soap opera I've uh, ever seen. It reminds me a bit of these telenovelas I used to watch when I lived in Latin America, where you were just like, who? What? But she was married to that guy before, and now they're, ah, you're just, everyone is related and marries each other. So Ulfhild has been queen of Sweden, married to Inga the Younger, and is now queen of Denmark. And she's actually been living in Denmark since Inga the Younger died, apparently, as we said. Now, Swedish historian Adolf Schuck 
then claims that Ulfhild starts to pressure Magnus to remove his main rival to the Danish throne, a duke called Knut, and he says, keeps bugging him, saying, oh, look, if you just get rid of this one Knut, then you'll be king of Denmark for sure. And so eventually Magnus does do this, murdering Knut around just after New Year's in 1131. It's quite a gruesome description of this in the Chronicle, where Magnus ends up ambushing Knut in a forest, and so they've attacked Knut's men, and it says that at the same time the holy man Knut wanted to get up, the traitor Magnus shamefully pulled him back with the cloak, and with his drawn sword he split Knut's head from the left ear to the right eye, and with his wicked blow made the victim's brain run out. Now Henrik ran forward and drove his spear through the innocent body of Knut. Then the other accomplices in this crime stuck their spears in the Duke's chest. Gee, that is bloody. Pretty uh, dead, I think. Yeah, it must have looked like a hedgehog when they finished. Yeah, with no brain. That is, ew. Yeah, but unfortunately for Magnus, his uh, mother-in-law's plan doesn't really solve the problem as this dead Duke Knut's half-brother Eric tries to get revenge and he starts a rebellion all across Denmark against Magnus and King Niels. I mean, that kind of bloody murder probably would encourage some sort of revenge from any surviving family members. Yeah, and whilst all of this is going on down in Denmark... The Swedes, uh, far from being passive, were busy watching and seemingly preparing to take advantage of the situation. In 1132, seeing that this Danish rebellion wasn't just a flash in the pan, but was actually erupting into a full-blown civil war in Denmark, they took this opportunity to elect their own king, a seemingly random previously unknown landowner in Östergötland called Sverker. Saxo Grammaticus has this to say. The Swedes, when they heard that Magnus was busy with war in Denmark, took one of their fellow countrymen, a man of modest ancestry by the name of Sverker, as their king, not because they appreciated him in particular, but since they would not stand under the rule of a foreigner. That's pretty damning. Uh, not because they appreciated him in particular. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's not what you want someone to say when you get a new job. It's like, we, we don't really appreciate you in particular, but you're the best person we can get for this job. Yeah, and it's quite interesting that they uh, call Magnus a foreigner, even though he does have this Swedish ancestry, but because he's the son of the king of Denmark, they're seeing him as a foreigner. Yeah, and this is pretty much going to be as good as it gets for Magnus and Niels. As the rebellion in Denmark gathers pace to a full-blown civil war, Ulvhild does something dramatic, which actually helps cement Sverker's claim to the throne. In roughly 1134, Ulvhild, Queen of Denmark, leaves Niels escapes from Denmark, moves to Sweden, and marries Sverker. That's amazing. In the middle of a civil war, and also kind of a war against another country, the queen just decides, nah, I'm going to leave, and marry the pretender king back in Sweden, when your own son-in-law is claiming that title for himself too. 
This is what I mean about how it's all a telenovela. This is uh, quite crazy. Uh, we can see why it might make sense for Sverko and also for Ulvhild, actually. Seeing as she was the widow of Inge the Younger, Ulvhild represented the influence and power of the now extinct Stenshild dynasty and presumably could still garner some support in areas across Sweden. Uh, this marriage would have helped to bring legitimacy to the non-royal Sverker, who has, it seemed, appeared out of nowhere, and it probably brings more power to Ulvhild herself as well. Her son-in-law was effectively no longer in charge in Sweden and was busy fighting a civil war with her old husband back in Denmark, so she was choosing a more stable position for herself, even though she did it in quite a dramatic way. She could quite conceivably have had a lot of behind-the-scenes power with Sverko, utilizing her political experience and also links to previous dynasties to be quite a strong facilitator in the Swedish court. It's quite an impressive history, and now she has been queen three times, twice in Sweden and once in Denmark. Yeah, it's it's really a great another great story of these amazing women just ruling from various different locations all around Scandinavia. Yeah. And perhaps she really did see the writing on the wall because at a battle down in Skorna in June of 1134, King Niels and his son Magnus faced off against this rebel leader Eric in a battle to decide the fate of the Danish throne. Eric had assembled the peoples of Skorna and Skorna's archbishop to fight for him, along with a large contingent of German cavalry. There's actually a lot of religious subcontext to this uh, rebellion as well that we don't have time to go into because we're not a history of Denmark, but that's why the archbishop is also involved mm. in all this goings-on. Now, in relation to the German cavalry, cavalry hadn't really been used in Scandinavia as an organised military force at this point, unlike in uh, Europe with Roman history and things like that. Cavalry hasn't really been used, even throughout the Viking period. And this is quite important because the first cavalry charge that this German cavalry makes in the battle is so terrifying for these Danish royals that King Niels actually runs away and leaves the battle with most of his men, leaving Magnus to fight the rebel army with just a small group of soldiers. Saxo Grammaticus gives us perhaps the most dramatic death of a king so far, where he says, Magnus preferred death to escape in order not to eclipse his old reputation for courage. Finally, when he had fought rashly and killed many enemies, he fell over the heap of corpses that had piled up around him. Ew, that's, that's gruesome. But it shows you he was fighty himself, so <laughs> that I guess that's the point of the story. But... Yeah, for our point of the story, Magnus is dead in a pretty dramatic made-for-cinema <laughs> kind of death. His father, Niels, whilst he managed to escape the battle, he didn't escape his ultimate fate and was killed later the same year. And so rebel Eric then becomes king of Denmark and is from now on known as Eric the Memorable. <laughs> well, that is pretty memorable. Yeah. And that is a great uh, sort of nickname I'd rather I be Elsa the memorable than, you know, the Elsa 
Huh, who was she again? Slimy. <laughs> yeah. When Magnus dies, his widow, Rikissa, returns to Poland and ends up marrying a prince of Minsk in an alliance against the Kievan Rus. Uh, a decade or so later, she is divorced and returns to Poland. Spoiler warning here, Sverka is still king of Sweden at this point, and his wife, Ulvhild, will die in around 1148. Rikissa amazingly then marries Sverka. In doing so, for her third marriage, she marries the enemy of her ex-husband, and also someone who has just been married to her widow's stepmom. This is all a bit confusing, but uh, we will return to it in a future episode when we finish Sverkel's sort of life story and reign. Exactly, because we're going to have to stop there for today. And with that, we've reached the end of the mini sort of hundred year arc with which we started the High Middle Ages with, with episode 26. Whilst the High Middle Ages has another 120 or so years to go, things start to pick up from now on in terms of much more information about what's happening. So that's why we had this sort of mini section here where we had 10 kings in 50 years and then all of this drama on top so from now on it's more of a consistent storyline going forward but it's still the high middle ages because unfortunately there haven't really been that many big set piece events that we've had a lot of detail on in the last 60 or 70 years and a lot of the kings have quite literally been dismissed in the history books with a mere sentence or two true uh, but from now as chris says Things are definitely going to become more detailed. Uh, there's more resources. There's more information out there. There is going to be a lot of fighting between a few royal houses uh, fighting for the throne. Uh, so we'll have to see exactly how things play out and decide how we will tell this part of the story. Because, of course, for quite a while yet, the main actors in this flat pack history of Sweden's story uh, is going to be powerful men and kings but we promise to keep digging for more interesting stories about women like we heard today with Ingejärd and Ulvhild and Margaret and, and so on to make sure that the stories about women are there as well. Yeah, because they're key to the story in so many ways, as we've seen today. But from now, that's all from us. And uh, until next time, don't forget to follow us on social media. We're at Flatpack Sweden on Twitter and search for a Flatpack History of Sweden on Facebook. You can find us on anywhere you can find your podcast, as you know, because you're listening to this right now. You've presumably found us somehow. And yeah, that's uh, pretty much it, I think. Yeah, or if you want to get in touch with us via email, uh, you can email us on flatpackhistorysweden, or one word, flatpackhistorysweden at gmail.com. But yeah, for now, it's a goodbye from us. Bye-bye. Hey, Dor.